Y'all pay attention. Captain's got to teach stuff. story analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review, and there will also be minor, minor spoilers for Avengers Infinity War. In 1990, when I was six years old, my mom gave me a mixtape of rock songs she loved, plus a few from my favorite things. I've never forgotten the first two tracks, Prince's Bat Dance and the T-U-R-T-L-E power rap from the first Ninja Turtles film. It and a couple subsequent tapes became the soundtrack of my childhood. My soundtrack was mostly a little newer than Peter Quill's, a lot of 80s pop, but I cherished those tapes just like Peter. I started going to a lot of arena rock shows with my mom in high school and college, and music became our favorite pastime together. I'm that six-year-old kid again whenever I see a show with my mom, and it's a feeling I treasure every time we see a band like Oreo Speedwagon, Styx, or Heart. The original mixtape went missing when I was a teenager and I was heartbroken. I thought it was lost forever. But just a few months before Guardians of the Galaxy came out, it turned up in an old box or something. And I don't mind admitting, I teared up at the sight of it. This artifact that represented the most formative years of my early childhood and the best memories of time spent with my mother. It's maybe the single object I care most about that has no monetary value. I couldn't believe the timing when I saw Guardians. It felt like the movie had been made just for me. And when Peter Quill finally decides he can accept his mother's death and move on at the end after finding another family when he opens her birthday gift and it's a second tape, I couldn't keep it together in the theater. I took my mom to see this movie and handed her that first mixtape I thought I had lost during the credits. It was a really special moment. And Guardians of the Galaxy is a really special movie, not just because it spoke to me on such a personal level. And I'm sure I wasn't the only guy whose mom gave him a mixtape as a kid that was bawling at the end. Guardians is such a bold choice because there was no brand recognition and no built-in insurance in the concept. And it's a bold move in its confidence in and reverence for the material. It takes a lot of commercial and narrative risks. It scratches a number of itches that few movie franchises in 2014 were scratching. Space opera, sci-fi comedy, the intergalactic and cosmic side of superhero comics. And had Green Lantern been a success, who knows if this would have been the same sort of cultural phenomenon, if Marvel had even elected to make it. It's special because it's a strange idea, a totally obscure property few audience goers had ever heard of, and even a decent number of comic readers that is somehow totally accessible and speaks to a wide range of people. It's funny without being a total farce. It's dramatic without undercutting the comedy it's sold on. It's fleshed out a huge part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that's only been hinted at without using cross-movie references or characters as a crotch. It's a gritty and dirty world without being too dark for families, and despite being about a group of damaged anti-heroes, anti-heroes initially anyway, it's dripping with optimism, and it's maybe the most feel-good movie Marvel has produced. Certainly, it was up to that point. The comedy is sometimes crude, but it never crosses a line for me like the Transformers movies. The risque language and references don't feel shoehorned in to appease a particular demographic. 
They feel like they're there because those are the sensibilities of the characters using them, and most of that goes over kids' heads. It's both nostalgic and totally unique. It's not ripping off Star Wars. It's employing a lot of the same devices that made Star Wars work. It's a fun and colorful space adventure in an often bleak setting with real violence and in a story with real emotional stakes about a young man with a lot of growing up to do who is part of that alien world but who is instantly recognizable and relatable, who befriends some less-than-reputable characters who are totally lovable and who have big hearts beating inside of their gruff exteriors. Director James Gunn relies a lot on his audience's yearning for things past in aspects that feel like classic movies we don't make anymore, and in blatant uses of old things, like the mostly 70s rock soundtrack. It may all seem carefully calculated when you consider it from a purely commercial standpoint. You blend enough seemingly new but quirky, which is really in right now, like a talking tree and a genetically engineered raccoon, with nostalgic elements, like old popular music you loved as a kid. We can break this down into what looks like an ingenious recipe for success, but the dish itself doesn't look like it followed a recipe. All of those elements, for the most part, are naturally and effortlessly driven by characters' personalities, interests, and decisions. It doesn't feel like it's a 70s rock soundtrack because that's the cool tone Gunn came up with, juxtaposing the space setting with feel-good pop, but because we're experiencing that setting from Star-Lord's point of view. It gets us in his head. It's a comedy, not because Marvel wanted to make a wacky hijinks movie, but because the material and characters naturally lend themselves to that genre. It wins its audience over because it isn't a lot of disparate ingredients all thrown in a pot together, hoping against hope they somehow turn into one flavor that's palatable. It's a lot of unlikely ingredients that end up tasting great together. They complement each other in unusual ways, and they were arrived at through the development of characters and ideas, not in an attempt to appease every kind of moviegoer. Even if that was a consideration, and when you're making a commercial movie that needs to make back a big investment, how could it not be even subconsciously? Anything that comes from that place is so cleverly interwoven into this fully realized world, I can't tell. Sort of like CG and practical effects blended together so seamlessly, you can't always see the difference. And this movie does a ton of that as well. In his commentary, James Gunn says that Joss Whedon read his first draft and told him to inject more humor into the script, that it needed more James Gunn. Gunn resisted because he worried that's not what the studio wanted. So whether you like how comedic the film became, it sounds like making it a comedy wasn't a mandate from the studio. It wasn't a crutch from the beginning. But Gunn was able to realize its distinct identity once he allowed that aspect to come to the fore. Much of the success of the film comes from how far it takes its quirkiness and comic book absurdity without losing sight of the human element or its really tight textbook story structure. It's constantly subverting expectations, often to turn a standard dramatic trope on its head, like the epic walking on slow motion shot where our characters are yawning and scratching themselves, rather than being stalwart and larger than life. And while there's an element of parody there, it's never farcical. It works because it feels like what these characters would do. Again, they aren't forced into a comedy. It's a comedy because of their behavior. But it also subverts expectations in how serious and dramatic it is, especially given its marketing. No one expected this movie to open with such a somber scene, the heart-wrenching death of Peter Quill's mom. At first glance, that might seem like the opposite of what I praise a lot of good openings for, especially in heightened genre pieces. It doesn't establish the jokey and lighthearted tone the picture will take so you know what you're getting yourself into, but it does establish the relatively grounded reality, consistent with the other Marvel films. It says up front that it belongs in that universe and can stand toe-to-toe with the Iron Mans and the Captain Americas as stories meant to be taken seriously, not as simply an escapist and easily dismissed farce. 
And of course, all of those other Marvel movies have a lot of comedy, but this one is still a straight-up comedy. We do get the sense right away that there's something different about this movie, even in that scene. There's already a hint of that pseudo-Spielberg style, especially when Peter runs out into the fog-covered hospital yard and is abducted by aliens. That's a scene right out of E.T., but it wisely starts on Earth to literally ground us in reality, to establish a human character who instantly resonates with us and to lead with a scene that assures us there's a human story driving the action and humor. On repeat viewings, it's impressive how effortlessly that scene establishes Peter's character, his bond with his mother, his love for her music, but also the lore and background it's setting up to pay off later. It's an incredibly dense scene with so many clues to where we're going, but it doesn't overwhelm because it won't lose you on first viewing if you don't remember that Meredith Quill called Peter's father an angel and said he came from the stars. The movie has as good a command of storytelling as any in the MCU. And then, when we go from sad to dreary and suspenseful to spontaneous and carefree, between the teaser and one of the best opening titles in a superhero movie, it is a tonal shift, but a totally intentional, logical, and deeply satisfying one. I've never had a bigger smile on my face when the title for a movie has appeared on the screen. I think it speaks to so many different audiences because it's a wonderfully complex movie, with so many moving parts that shouldn't work together but do, propelled by a very simple and universally relatable story. An old lady who never saw Star Wars, never read a comic book, can't get her mind around a talking raccoon, and cringes at the Jackson Pollock joke may not appreciate the movie on its face, but the mother-son relationship may be enough to keep her immersed. Guardians of the Galaxy is a movie about family, and what happens to people when they lose it, have it taken from them, or never had a family in the first place. And as a superhero story, it's about the connection to other human beings, or at least self-aware entities that seem to be bound by the human condition. A person has to have before he can be a hero. The basic story formula is familiar. A bunch of broken loners only out for themselves, or losers, as Peter calls them, not because they're screw-ups, but because they've all lost stuff, find their sense of compassion and brotherhood in the camaraderie they develop for each other. Suicide Squad is, at least ostensibly, another superhero movie example. What sets Guardians apart is that it's also a coming-of-age story about a guy who tragically, but also comedically, never grew up. Peter isn't a grizzled, beaten-down, broken man who is detached from his humanity. He's a man-child. He clings to things from his childhood that make him feel safe and comfortable as he wanders around the galaxy, without the benefit of guidance and mentorship from proper parents, only looking out for himself because he's trying to survive and he's never lost a childlike fear of a vast and forbidding universe or a child's thirst for adventure. Peter Quill is the kid who gets an adventure much like the movies and books he must have grown up with, that maybe he always dreamed to have. It's kind of a be careful what you wish for scenario, and I wish there were references to more of Peter's interests outside of music and Footloose here, but we get more in the sequel, and I think it's safe to say, even just looking at this film as its own piece, that Peter was probably a wide-eyed kid with a wild imagination who might have given anything to see the stars, except for his mother and his life. Some of the other Guardians find their renewed humanity. Peter is still growing up, still trying to find himself in the first place. When Gamora first meets him, she says, honestly, I think, that he has the bearing of an honorable man. She knows what honor looks like because, as she says later, she spent her life surrounded by her enemies, and there's a stark contrast. Peter, like Steve Rogers, already has a heart. 
he doesn't have to find it like Tony Stark does. But he does have to nourish it, and that nourishment has been severely lacking since his mom died and he was sucked up into a spaceship. Peter has a skewed but still childlike view of the world. He's not sure he can trust anyone because of the cutthroat world of the Ravagers he was thrust into. He's out for himself because he thinks he has to be, but he's fighting his natural tendencies. He hates injustice, and his natural inclination is to punish it, as evidenced by his black eye in the flashback with his mother at the beginning. He got in a fight with another kid who killed a frog. Importantly, he wasn't fighting to defend, he was fighting because a wrong was committed against another living thing. I may be getting ahead of myself by mentioning this now, but I think Peter has the potential to go two ways this movie. One is closer to Ronan the Accuser, a psychotic fanatic who wants revenge on the entire civilization of Xandar for the deaths of his forefathers, and one is closer to Captain America. Peter is a wayward soul at the beginning, who might go either way, and I like that by the end, despite heroically saving Gamora from the vacuum of space and helping to protect the whole civilization from Ronan's wrath, Peter is still the homesick kid who lost his mom and will never be the same again, but he's a little more whole after finding a new family. He's not the gallant hero forevermore, not all good or all bad, he's a bit of both. Throughout the film, Gamora checks him against her original assessment, that he's a man of honor, that he struggles to measure up to that, trying to put his own interests above all else, but he's endearing because that's hard for him. When he saves Gamora, he hardly thinks about it. It's a little like Steve Rogers throwing himself on the grenade in First Avenger. It's not a choice, it's instinct. But Peter unlike Steve Rogers, wouldn't do that for just anyone. He's beginning to fill the void his mom left with a person he cares about beyond a one-night stand, and he doesn't even realize it. Peter maybe has a Freudian complex with women before Gamora, subconsciously searching the galaxy for the perfect woman to replace his mom, treating them like objects to be discarded when they don't fill his need. Which, come to think of it, gets really interesting when we meet his dad in the sequel and discover that's exactly what he did in trying to sire an heir. Except Ego didn't discard the women he seduced, he murdered them. Peter's compassion shines through when he develops real affection for a woman. I think because she sees the best in him from the beginning and he wants to be that for her. And once he's acted on that, impulsively, he starts to seriously think better of just acting on survival instinct, which has always meant following the Ravager code and he gives in to his natural sense of empathy. If it weren't for the bond he has with his new friends, I could see Peter heading down a much darker path. Each of our main characters is defined by their ties to family. Each of their worldviews is directly impacted by who they've lost and who, if anything, they've gained. And when those things happen is important, too. Peter loses his mother, gains a father in Yondu, he thinks is just using him, and never feels like he has any guidance or nurturing. He gains a family in the Guardians, who have all suffered similar losses, and they at least somewhat restore his faith in people, because despite how empty their lives have been, they discover a love and loyalty for him. His mother raises him long enough that she's able to be a positive influence on him before his life becomes a living hell, and clinging to his memories of her is what keeps him from falling into an irreversible despair for as long as he's on his own. Gamora has the most in common with Peter. She was raised in a happy family as well until she was abducted by Thanos, a parallel that's here but becomes more apparent in Infinity War. She is raised to be one thing but never forgets where she comes from and longs to get out of that life, just as Peter wanted to get away from the Ravagers. The only difference is that he was eventually allowed to go on his own, though in constant fear of being killed by the same gang that raised him if he crossed them. While Gamora had a plan to double-cross Thanos and get under his thumb, both were raised by a hard man who 
wasn't their real father, apparently taking advantage of them for his own ends and without a female role model. Of course, in Peter's case, that father figure is actually looking out for him the whole time, which is subtly apparent here, but wonderfully fleshed out in the sequel. And I guess Thanos also has real affection for Gamora, as we learn in Infinity War, but that's still an entirely different sort of relationship, and looking at Guardians as its own piece, there's a clear contrast there. Man, it is hard to discuss these things on their own when they're also part of a greater whole and when they're so informed by movies that come later. Gamora is hardened by Thanos' influence and has a ruthlessness ingrained in her. She's willing to do whatever she thinks is necessary. Her heart is in the right place. She hates Thanos and doesn't want to be a part of the suffering he causes, but she'll hurt people without hesitation to stop him, like when she nearly kills Peter for the orb outside the broker's shop and says, with a hint of sympathy but not remorse, this wasn't part of the plan. She's maybe a little like what Peter Quill might have been had he never found the Guardians but continued to see the worst in people, and yet Peter brings a softer side out of her, and she finds a joy in life she never thought she'd have with him, which she expresses with her subtle head bob to the music at the end, paying off Peter's Kevin Bacon speech, imploring her to appreciate the importance of dancing. It's not a romantic chemistry I totally bought on first viewing, though Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana are growing on me more together on each subsequent watch, but they fill the void for each other more than any of the other Guardians because they bring out the best in each other and they fill in the blanks. Gamora grounds Peter, she's more level-headed and streetwise, and he makes her see the bright side to things, reminding her of the innocence she's lost. While it is the beginning of a romance, I like that Gamora rejects Peter's advances and he falls for her anyway. They have a deep, solid foundation of friendship before, in the sequel, they graduate to romance. Considering Peter hasn't taken any relationship he's had seriously, I think it's important that it's a genuine friendship before there's anything sexual there. Drax isn't defined by the loss of a parent, but rather by the loss of his wife and children, and that turns him into the vengeance-consumed man I think Star-Lord could easily be under the right circumstances. Like, if he found out about what Ego did to his mom before he found his home with the Guardians. Drax is the only one of them who is allowed to grow up, had a stable and fulfilling life, and then had it ripped from him. Peter and Gamora were wronged as children, but they still have a chance to start a life with someone, and maybe even each other. Drax was robbed not of his childhood, but of a life he built. The Guardians replaced that life for him, and he has the most profound change, because he was a man who had nothing left but revenge, and gets to live for something again. We'll see more of this in the sequel, but he's already starting to derive joy from the thrill of adventure toward the end, like when he manically and hilariously laughs during the battle for Xandar. He still, in his mind, has an obligation to avenge his family's deaths, but he finds himself again as he accepts his new family, just as Peter is finding himself in the first place. Having been a father, I might have expected Drax to become a father figure for Peter, but they're from different worlds, literally, and Drax hardly speaks his language. Also, probably literally, since apparently they have universal translators. He's more like the weird but lovable uncle. He reminds me a little of Uncle Fester from the Adams Family. He has a simple but not-so-innocent perspective on life that seems to come not because he hasn't grown up, but because life used to be so uncomplicated and made sense to him and I'm sure some of it is cultural. I doubt if anyone from Drax's world is up on metaphor and allegory. He's the exact opposite of the Temerians from the Star Trek TNG episode Darmok. Drax sees the world in black and white. The Guardians add not gray, but color. It's the most optimistic revenge story I've ever seen. We see a guy satisfy his vow of vengeance and even make another one on Thanos, but he gets to have a life beyond it. 
It's not like Bruce Wayne's speech to Dick Grayson in Batman Forever. Revenge doesn't become Drax's whole life. And as we'll see in the next movie, he quickly becomes the happiest person in his new family. He's like the Punisher if he both moved on with a new life and kept being the Punisher. The least happy Guardian, now and maybe forever, is Rocket. He's at the furthest end from Drax on the family spectrum. Drax had a fully functioning family, and presumably a good upbringing too, though we aren't told anything about his parents, and I'd like to have some of that. Peter and Gamora both lost their families and had them replaced with scarier ones, but Rocket has no family to begin with. The others have their faith in people shaken, but Rocket has no reason to have faith in anyone to begin with. He's a genetic experiment and was violently tortured for research. He's a fantastic metaphor for disenfranchised youth when he says, I didn't ask to be made. Star-Lord's life looks like a field day compared to Rocket's, who had no mother or father and knows nothing but cruelty and exploitation from humanoid beings. He looks out for himself, like Peter, but takes advantage of anyone he can because, as far as he can tell, that's the only way to get by. And the only real joy he finds is in killing people when he can justify it. Catharsis for all the terrible things that were done to him, and stealing people's bionic body parts, which never, ever, ever gets old. Rocket is a total nihilist and can't see the point in even being alive. I love the comedy that comes naturally even in otherwise depressing scenes, like when Rocket tells Peter he doesn't see why he should try to save the galaxy, asking what the galaxy ever did for him. I'm one of the idiots who lives in it! Rocket is a Frankenstein monster, the only one of his kind, unsure of his humanity or his place in the cosmos, but who manages not to go completely postal because he finds people who are the opposite of his previous experience with other life. And while his background is arguably the most horrifying and he's the most disconnected from humanity, he can relate to the others, particularly Gamora, who has also been genetically and cybernetically experimented on and may have cause to question how human or... Zahoberi? She still is. He's like Peter in that he's very much like a teenager still trying to find his place in the world. And by the end of the film, when he loses Groot, Rocket can finally empathize with Drax, who he didn't understand at all and even lambasted earlier when Drax calls Ronin and foolishly puts everyone in danger. And side note, because I don't have a great place to put this and I'm not going to get deep into it, but that's a pretty easy moment just to get us to the next plot point. The Rocket and Groot relationship is essential from the beginning, because without it, I think Rocket would just lose his mind and go on a murder spree until someone put him out of his misery. Rocket is the only one of the damaged Guardians who has already found a friend before the movie starts. That's his only link to humanity, and he's the least human-looking character in the movie, even next to Rocket. Groot almost literally roots Rocket to the ground, showing him a compassion and simple appreciation for all life that he hasn't seen in people before. Groot is the extreme counterexample to Rocket's creators. I love that it takes what looks like a part of nature to display the best parts of human nature. Groot doesn't exist just to get all he can out of whoever gets in his path, though like the Vision, he will kill someone who poses a direct threat to innocent life. He exists for life and has an innocent childlike wonder, but also the wisdom of an old man. We don't know hardly anything about Groot, and he needs no background at all. He's appropriately the foundation for the other Guardians, the one stable and unbroken constant. I keep wanting to say Groot is the Guardian's rock, but I don't want to mix my nature metaphors. I doubt seriously if this was ever a consideration in the Abnett and Lanning comics that inspired this film or here, but it's interesting that Groot is the one Guardian who is completely comfortable with his identity and his lot in life, and the only thing he says is announcing who he is. 
I am Groot. By the end of the movie, when the group has come together for each other and to save the galaxy, Groot can sacrifice himself without them falling apart because they can support themselves now. They no longer need that branch to stand on. Okay, I'm done. Seriously. No more tree metaphors. I promise. I'm just imagining Drax telling me they weren't standing on a branch and Groot is a tree, not a rock, and that if Groot rooted Rocket to the ground, he would be stuck and unable to fly the Milano. And it's, of course, really interesting that Groot goes from the example of the best self-aware creatures have to offer to an infant that now has to be raised by this group that has just learned to be a family partly from Groot, and they have to follow his example to raise him. I'll talk about this a lot more when we get to the sequel, but it's impressive how the movie manages to have its cake and eat it too with Groot's sacrifice. It isn't a cheat, because he really does die, and he's replaced with, arguably, a brand new Groot. Although I'll admit, I think I had to see the sequel before I was totally sure about that. But the movie gets away with losing and keeping a central character at the same time. And a lot of the supporting characters are defined by their family situation. The Collector is a man who looks at people as objects to be used or collected, though we certainly know nothing about how he got this way. His slave, Karina, is another person damaged by a father figure, who represents another alternative to revenge, suicide, although I imagine she hopes the blast from the Infinity Stone will take out the Collector as well when she touches it. Nebula is a dark mirror for Gamora, the jealous sister Thanos was even harder on who fights Gamora for his affection, literally as we'll learn later. She is somewhere between Gamora and Rocket, born naturally but with so many mechanical alterations she may be like Darth Vader, more machine than man, or woman. Gamora manages to retain some semblance of humanity as she sees how deplorable her father and the company he keeps are compared to the family that raised her and the universe outside. Compared to Thanos, the rest of the galaxy might seem kind, but even though Nebula hates Thanos even more than Gamora, she's been shattered by Thanos in a way even Gamora can't appreciate, and she can't see a life for herself beyond Thanos' world, so the best she can hope for is earning his favor. And then there's Denarian Day, the one humanoid character we spend any time with who isn't damaged by loss of family. He's the Nova Corps leader who processes the Guardians in the Kiln with Saul, played by Peter Serafinowicz, in the least tick-like role possible just a couple of years before he gets to play that part. Denarian Day is a down-to-earth, honorable family man who doesn't lose everything like the Guardians have because the Guardians save his world. He could use a little more screen time because he's the face of what the Guardians come to be all about preserving families. They inadvertently stop a good man from going through the horrors they have by making their lives about helping each other instead of selfish revenge, which just brings about more pain and more revenge. I love that this movie makes me buy that our misfit band of thieves and killers deserve a chance to live their lives at the end and that the Xandaran government would actually expunge their criminal records. When Day says to Quill, I have a family, they're alive because of you. That's a powerful moment, and a perfect summation of the Guardian's collective arc. It's on the nose, but I like that name, too, Day. It didn't occur to me until now that it's a reflective name, as he represents the regular life our heroes haven't been allowed to live. He lives in the day, while they've all been in the dark until they find each other. There's a deleted scene with him I wish he'd been left in, where he pleads with Saul not to throw them in the kiln because that's where the most violent offenders are and it would be cruel to put them there. That might have been enough to make him more memorable to audiences when we get to his family at the end. We might care more about him by then, after he advocated for our protagonist just because he's a good man. He reminds me a lot of Chief O'Brien from Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. 
Ronan is the ultimate whiny man-child, and he's a mirror for Peter, though it's easy to miss on first viewing because so much about Ronan is typical generic bad guy fare, and the movie doesn't make a lot of direct comparisons. I wish somehow they had more screen time together besides the dance-off at the end. Like Peter, Ronan never grew up, but he isn't the guy clinging to his innocence, he's the petulant, entitled child who wants to punish the world for his pain. Drax lives by an honorable code of vengeance. Whether you believe in such behavior, there's no disputing that Ronan did Drax a terrible injustice. Ronan's family was also killed, and that's terrible, but they died in a declared war with a nation they have since signed a peace treaty with. Ronan doesn't want justice or even righteous vengeance if an argument can be made for such a thing. He just wants to win the war that's already over. He's a toddler throwing a genocidal temper tantrum. I'm imagining Ronan having the conversation Rocket has with Denarian Day at the end. What if I hate someone more than they hate me, and I want them all wiped out of existence? Well, that's actually genocide, which is one of the worst crimes of all. So, yeah, it's illegal. But you don't understand. I hate them more, sir. This is a story about the relationship between relationships and empathy. Characters with someone in their life they cherish, in turn, tend to have more regard for life in general. Again, Groot is the one character who transcends that. I don't think anything could shake his empathy, possibly because he's a walking, talking part of nature, but he functions in the narrative as the unshakable example of life above all else. With Ronin on the opposite side, very much like Vision and Ultron. And like Ultron, Ronin is lashing out at a cruel, unfair world he doesn't have a place in. He has no empathy because he defiantly refuses to see the best in people. He could embrace the peace between the Kree and Xandar and help his people build a better world, but it's not the world he wants. So like that kid Peter beat up for squishing a frog, he just wants to eradicate it. On paper, it's a fun take on the accuser title. Ronan is the accuser because he blames everyone else for his problems, pretending like the world revolves around him and failing to take responsibility for his actions that create the precise personal catastrophe for others that's turned him into a big, dark, scary, spoiled brat. But as I say, that's on paper. I haven't criticized a lot about the execution of any of this because most of it is rock solid. Yes, I can say rock now. We're no longer talking about Groot. Although at some point in the MCU, we will get to a rock guy in Ragnarok. Rock guy in Ragnarok. Anyway, but Ronan isn't compelling on his own, and he only becomes thematically functional as I compare him to our heroes, which I didn't find myself doing naturally like I did with the other characters in the film. I never even thought of Ronan as the dark side of the man-child until preparing for this review because I never gave him much thought at all. While he wraps up the family versus empathy spectrum nicely, and if there was still a visual component to this show, you'd be looking at a chart right now with Groot on one end, Ronan on the other, and Peter Quill right in the center. I don't know that I need him to put these other characters' worldviews in perspective and appreciate them exactly as I do now. I don't think everything translates from paper to screen with Ronan. First, there's his motivation. What Ronan wants is there, but it's easy to forget why he wants Xandar destroyed because he doesn't bring it up enough. It reads like an excuse just to make the conflict happen rather than a fully realized antagonist with a plan. Like so many Marvel villains, his backstory and perspective is thought out but whittled down to the bare minimum, like a cake donut with just barely enough sugar on top that you could still call it frosted. If one more line of Ronan's dialogue was removed, I could hardly call him a character at all. 
What confused me about him until this viewing was the religious zealot angle. According to Gunn in his commentary, there used to be more of a religious component to his motivation, and my guess is that's supposed to be the main conflict at the center of the Kree-Zandar war. It was cut, probably because this isn't a movie about religion, but there's still a residue of it remaining. And when I picked up on it, I thought that was more central to his motivation, what with all the blood ritual and pomp and circumstance, and I missed that he was another broken man stripped of his humanity as he was stripped of his family. And secondly, Ronan is the one element where I think Gunn fails to balance the drama and comedy. I like that Ronan is so no-nonsense, and we're not constantly stopping everything for a moment of awkward humor to turn a standard dramatic beat on its head like we do so often with The Guardians. It's not suddenly a slapstick world because we're making a comedy. The sequel is more liberal about that, and it sometimes feels like cheating there. But I think Ronan is supposed to be ironically funny. Not intrusively, but in unintentional comedy like Drax, who is not trying to be funny, and he hardly grasps humor, but ends up leading to some of the funniest bits in the film. I actually don't think the movie goes far enough with Ronan's version of that. He's constantly wearing a pouty face, and I think that's supposed to be hilarious as he's extending his lower lip because he's a petulant child. I should be laughing at how seriously he takes himself, but it's a little like Moist's wetness in Dr. Horrible. It doesn't quite translate to the screen. I really like all the heightened, almost Shakespearean melodrama with the villains. They talk a lot like the formal-speaking cosmic bad guys in Jim Starlin's comics, but I think Ronan could afford to go a lot bigger and be even more theatrical with his temper tantrums. In some ways, Kylo Ren strikes me as what Ronan should have been. Guardians of the Galaxy is by no means the worst offender of leaving essential character and mythology elements on the cutting room floor, but besides more details that might have made Ronan less generic, and that cut Denarian Day scene, there's a lot of stuff about the opening scene on Morag that's left out because Gunn couldn't figure out how to include it without bogging the story down with exposition. I sympathize. I'm praising the movie for being so simple and effortlessly keeping the audience engaged with so many characters and while developing this unfamiliar landscape, but I wish that backstory was still there because I felt really in the dark about what I was looking at and then never got to learn about it until I listened to Gunn's commentary. And it's irritating because it's the only explanation for why the planet is like that, but it's not in the movie, so it still hardly counts. I liked it in the moment, our hands aren't being held about what's going on, and there are a few moments of blatant exposition and dialogue I think this movie is too good for, like the line toward the end about how the Ravagers were supposed to deliver Peter to his dad. It's usually handled like this, where we're thrown into the action and we get to piece it together as it's happening. Maybe I don't have to know that this civilization was destroyed by global warming and that it's a flooded planet with tides that recede rarely and Peter had to wait for that to happen before he could go after the orb and some of that I can infer from the scene. It's obviously an abandoned planet because, you know, it says that under Morag on the screen, abandoned planet, and it obviously used to have a thriving civilization. And when Peter goes to the broker, we learn how he knew about the orb. But in hindsight, it would have been nice to know that it was a planet that destroyed itself because working together to preserve the greater whole is a lot of what the movie is about. But also because planets like this are exactly why Thanos is trying to wipe out half of civilization in Infinity War. It also would have informed Peter's character and given us a better sense of the kind of risk taker and strategist he is from the beginning. According to Gunn, the reason Peter brings Ronan and the Ravagers to Morag is because he doesn't wait until the topography settles. He goes while the tide has mostly receded, but while it's still dangerous, while the other two parties wait. Though I'd think Ronan would risk his minions' lives and think up a similar strategy. 
Yes, it's another MacGuffin plot. Everyone's after an all-powerful artifact, and that's both the central conflict and the device that brings our heroes together. But it isn't just a formulaic stand-in for a real story, and I like that it's used to tell a story about the importance of family rather than the evils of greed. Obviously, greed is a driving force for some of our characters, but it might have been a really generic story with a tacked-on teamwork message without the we're-all-people-who-have-lost-stuff idea. And I like that even though the artifact makes the wielder obscenely powerful, it isn't another superhero movie about power and corruption and responsibility. That's what the Avengers movies are for. This isn't about grand ambition. It's about personal pain. Everyone driven to get the artifact wants it for a reason unconnected to an obsession with power. Except maybe Thanos, but before Infinity War, we don't know what his deal is yet. Peter wants it because he wants a paycheck. When Rocket gets involved, that's his emo as well. Gamora wants it to keep it away from Thanos, and Ronan doesn't know what it is at first, so he wants to sell it to Thanos in exchange for the destruction of Xandar. But even when he finds out it's an Infinity Stone, his motive doesn't change, he just decides to keep it because he can get what he wants without Thanos. By the way, that's a very duplicitous comic book kind of Thanos scheme, and it's reminiscent of a lot of what he does to trick people into giving him the Infinity Gems in Thanos' quest. Getting the Guardians together this way is impressively not too convenient, and that's because it's driven by their natural goals, which aren't all about getting the stone. Peter and Gamora meet because they want it, but Rocket and Groot are there because of the bounty Yondu puts on Peter's head. They don't even know about the orb. It's fun that Yondu inadvertently helps to put this family together as he's secretly trying to save his own. He announces a reward to get Peter brought in alive so the Ravagers won't kill him. And Drax is already in the kiln and gets involved because Gamora has been working with Ronan, who he wants dead. It's a well-crafted series of logically motivated actions and consequences. I also like the choice of making the Infinity Stone the one connection to the other movies in the MCU and to reveal, finally, what they are, a fact that will impact the entire universe moving forward in a movie that otherwise stands totally alone. We're drawing the curtain back without inviting everyone on stage yet, which allows this movie to be the fresh and unique experience it wants to be and build on pre-established mythology without being distracting about it. On first viewing, I had reservations about the ending, with love and friendship conquering all in the most literal possible way. It's pretty on the nose, but it's better seated than I gave it credit for initially. I hadn't noticed that the idea that several people can contain the power of the stone for a short period is established in the Collector's Exposition. He says that a small group, who knows who they were, were able to hold the stone together briefly, but they were too consumed by its power. Our heroes get the idea from that image because they see that group doing exactly what they'll do at the end, with the leader touching the stone and then each person touching him. I wonder if that guy was also part celestial like Peter will turn out to be. So it doesn't come out of nowhere like I thought, and I had forgotten that Glenn Nova Prime Close reveals that Peter is only half human and his alien side is probably why he was able to hold the stone for any amount of time. I don't know why people touching each other contains the stone's power. It's a conceit before it's an explanation, but at least it's established. Ignoring for a minute what's done with the Infinity Stones later. I might have made this the Soul Stone. Then you could maybe build in the character of a person, his loyalty or sense of sacrifice is the reason a group of friends can harness it. 
It is the moment that completely cements the group as a family. The wonderful loser speech is a first step, but here, every Guardian proves they're willing to do what group does for their friends. There aren't a lot of scenarios you can concoct where every member of an ensemble cast tries to make an epic sacrifice, but I think it's important that they're all willing to go that far for each other, and it's believable because of the bond they form and the example Groot set. It was sappy and maybe even a little heavy-handed at first glance, but the more I think about it, the more I like it. While we're on the ending, there are two moments around the battle for Xandar where I'm wondering why characters are standing around waiting for stuff to happen. One is when Yondu kills a bunch of Ronin's men standing in a circle. After Peter's stirring speech, Rocket says they're all a bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. No, that's these idiots, who, after the first couple guys get hit with Yondu's mortifying brain-powered fin dart, just stand there and wait for it to get to them. This scene is not presented in slow motion. Yes, the dart moves pretty fast, but there are a bunch of those guys there. Surely there was at least enough time for the last couple to react in some way. Bugs me every time. Also, I'm not sure that Ronin would really be that confused and put off by Peter's dance moves after the Milano crashes. Maybe the idea is that he's such a child he's that easily distracted, but I'd think Ronin would look at Peter all of five seconds before he beat him to death with his infinity hammer. Also, while I like the care taken in making the title of the team and the movie mean something, that these misfits who used to be just out for themselves are now the saviors and sort of self-imposed caretakers of the galaxy... I'm not sure about the way they get that name. I think it's maybe a little clunky. I don't mind Peter adopting it after he hears it from Ronan, but it doesn't sound like something Ronan would come up with. Or maybe it's more of a delivery issue, like maybe I need him to be more sarcastic about it. So annoyed these flies keep getting in his way, he comes up with that as a pejorative. I think that's what it's supposed to be, but I don't think it quite plays. While I'm pretty well won over now on the group hug to save the universe, We Are Groot is a bridge too far for me. I don't need a character to spell out the message there, and it's not just that it's sappy. God, there I go again, with the tree puns. It's that it has to go against rules we've established to do it. Rocket says that Groot's vocabulistics are limited to three words. Incidentally, vocabulistics was my favorite course first semester in college. When Groot says, we are Groot, has he just learned English enough to say that, or are we hearing what everyone else is hearing because they all have universal translators? But then if it's that, why does everyone only hear that one phrase whenever Groot talks the rest of the film? James Gunn says in his commentary that the reason no one is confused by Peter's casual and slang-ridden speech, and he can understand theirs, is because they all have translators. They aren't all speaking English. So, for instance, when Saul mentions a hamster, it's just the equivalent animal species they have on Xandar. He doesn't really say hamster, says Gunn. Okay, then why doesn't the translator work with Groot's language? But isn't so impossible to understand that Rocket knows it fluently? That's an inconsistency we get a lot in sci-fi things with translators. It's just a story device so people can understand each other, but once you throw in alien words, the thing doesn't automatically translate, it takes me out. And Groot's language is totally absurd anyway. Why does it include two English words? How could inflection possibly account for every sentiment he might want to express? So I'm pretty sure the idea there is that he's actually speaking English, but I'm not sure, and regardless, I don't need that line. On the other hand, I guess I do kind of like that they all live up to We Are Groot when they risk their lives to help Peter with the Power Stone. I don't know, maybe I do kind of want that line in the movie. Maybe it would be better if Peter Quill or one of the other Guardians thought to say it. 
it is a really tightly woven story, and it's impressive how hard it is to pull at any single thread without losing great pieces of the tapestry. Lastly, I would be remiss if I didn't further discuss the enormous importance of the music, both to the story and to the commercial success of the film. It maybe goes without saying, but this movie spawned one of the best compilation albums in history, and it's some of the most effectively used popular music in a movie. As far as superhero movies go, it beats out Watchmen for me. The songs aren't an afterthought, they're the foundation, in how the movie is made and in what happens in it. Gunn says in his commentary that the music was chosen and the film was scored before it was shot, so that he could play the music on set and allow it to set the tone for a lot of scenes, which strikes me as a brilliant way to get a handle on your movie's identity as you're making it, and I think it has a lot to do with why the movie is so self-assured and feels like a vision realized rather than a happy accident. It's especially smart in a movie like this, where the incidental music is a major story component. Not having Chris Pratt listen to that music would be like acting the whole movie in front of a green screen. Peter has a soundtrack for his life, and that becomes the soundtrack for the film. So as I suggested earlier, it isn't just arbitrary fun music selected to create anachronism. It allows us to see the galaxy through his eyes, and it also helps his new friends to understand him better, and to loosen up through his example. For moment one, it gives him a specific interest that reveals a lot about him. He isn't generically into rock or pop. We know the particular songs he loves. We know every song he loves. And because they're his link to his mother and she chose them, her presence is felt throughout the film, and I don't feel like I don't get enough time with her to appreciate how Peter feels about her. The opening scene officially gives us a taste of her personality and worldview, and the soundtrack tells the rest. She's a free spirit that believes in adventure and possibilities, and she thinks her son is destined for greatness. The cassette tape is the second important artifact in the film after the Power Stone. It represents Peter's heart and soul, and it's not only as linked to his mother, it connects him to Earth. If anything happens to it, Peter would feel truly alone. Like the tape my mom made me, it isn't worth anything to anyone else, but Peter would be more than devastated if he lost it. That's why I'm with him when he risks everything to go back into the kiln for it when the others are ready to make their getaway. The first time I saw this, I kept worrying the Walkman or the player in the ship would eat the tape. He's really lucky it's never been at least warped, much less that it hasn't been totally worn out after so much wear. I might have put a slight garble or warble in the soundtrack a couple of times for added realism. I became invested in the cassette as almost the source of Peter's power. He has a cool mask and rocket boots and blasters, but Peter's signature weapon is his Walkman. Peter Quill is the original baby driver. Perhaps the smartest choice in the movie is the second tape. The music is such a driving force that it becomes a brilliant source of sequel bait. We spend the entire movie with a mystery box device, we open it at the end, it's a second tape, and we get a taste, but we know we'll have to see the sequel to know what all is on that tape. Yeah, I was curious enough to know who Peter's father was, but I cared a lot more about hearing the rest of that cassette. It's astounding how sure Gunn was of the music motif. The success of the story rides on whether we have an emotional reaction to what's in the wrapping paper at the end. It's textbook setup and payoff, but if we don't believe in Peter and the way he's defined by the music, the whole thing falls apart. And it just tickles me pink that that motif is so story-driven. Everything that makes this soundtrack commercially genius comes directly from how it's used in the narrative. It's 70s rock, because that's what Peter's mom would be listening to, and that makes it mostly peppy and colorful and light, which contrasts wonderfully, of course, with the movie's grit and makes it easier to sell as a fun space adventure rather than a raunchy, dirty comedy. 
It appeals to an older demographic, too, and it puts something familiar right up front to give audiences an easy in. That makes viewers comfortable from the moment the title appears on screen, but it was also the perfect marketing device. The importance of Hooked on a Feeling in this movie's success cannot be underestimated. The rock numbers are staggered so that a lot of dramatic and action beats are punctuated by them, and they have a lot to do with how the film is paced. Guardians is very nearly a musical, short of characters actually breaking out in a song. The songs are about whatever is happening in a scene, and they're always in the fiction, never just placed over a scene, like in Watchmen. The selections are so perfect for each scene and fit so well together, it's as if they were written to be in this movie, which is why I think the album sold so well. A lot of people were introduced to this music through this movie. I don't buy much music anymore. I listen to Spotify, but I have this soundtrack on vinyl. Every song reflects or informs what's happening in a scene, either directly or ironically, but subtly enough that it's not intrusive. It doesn't feel like the music is narrating the scene. Fooled Around and Fell in Love is obviously what seems to be happening in that scene, but when Gamora stops the impending kiss and holds a knife to Peter's throat, we're left to wonder if she'll fall for him, and the expectations built by that incredibly romantic song, combined with the atmosphere of space and welding sparks outside the window, subverts our expectations. Cherry Bomb plays as the Guardians begin to implement their plan to stop Ronan, and maybe subtle foreshadowing that the plan is doomed to fail. Rocket's Hadron Enforcer ends up being no more effective than a cherry bomb. And the plan bombs. My favorite is the song under the opening credits, a sequence I cannot seem to stop talking about. Come and get your love. Peter is on his way to get the only thing he loves at the moment, an artifact to sell, a paycheck. But that will ultimately lead to his finding real love, both romantic and brotherly. It's as if the song is inviting him to get his adventure started so he can find a real sense of happiness. Come and get your love. Guardians of the Galaxy is a real triumph of making the old new again, of making me so emotionally invested in a laugh-a-minute comedy, and in audaciously making the case for this obscure and bizarre property as mainstream and accessible to everyone. It doesn't shy away from its premise or the ambiguous morality of its characters, who manage to remain endearing and are genuinely heroic, even if we may not condone everything they do or see them as perfect role models. The fact that I'm comfortable with my kids watching this movie, playing with its action figures, and dressing up as its characters is an accomplishment unto itself. The movie is made with a rare sense of love and care that translates fully to me whenever I watch it. It's got a weak villain, but except just needing some nefarious force to make conflict happen, it almost doesn't even need him. I'm giving Guardians of the Galaxy a 4 out of 4. Thanks again for listening, folks. Really hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we're going to do Deadpool. Really excited about it. Another movie that I cannot imagine the world now before it existed. Uh, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash geekvolution. For just $2 a month, you get early episodes of Superhero Rewind. You can also watch Geekvolution After Dark, which is my and Eric's uncensored talk show, and a whole bunch more. I take requests for episodes of Superhero Rewind with a $50 donation, and you can also do that at Patreon, and at the $10 tier, you can be a Patreon producer, and I'd like to thank all of my producers right now. You guys are all awesome. We've got Dylan Muschiello, Jackson Rasco, Nick Manna, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Ethan, Remy LeBlanc, Todd Schmuck, Gui D, Caleb, Daniel Gibson, Malik Myers, Neil McCalmet, Magpie's Nest Productions, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Ian McKee, David Crabtree, and Jeffrey Patron. Thanks for all your support, and by popular demand, I'd like to say this last thing before I go. 
Peace, I'm out. Bye.